A church, biblically speaking, is a family of faith. It's not an audience taught and performed to by professionals. It's a family sharing its gifts under the direction, under the headship of Jesus, supplying for the others what we may lack as we navigate life. And that means that in a family this size, as many people as came here to worship this weekend, some of you are in the happiest season of your whole life. You're just bursting with joy. Your life is better than you thought it could be. You're so very grateful. You can't believe the life you're living. Others of you, as a church member recently told me, feel like you're living a a waking nightmare. Life is harder than you knew it could be. Your prayers seem to go unanswered. God seems distant. I want you to know that in all of those seasons, God is unchanging. Our nation is being torn apart and saddened and grief-stricken in ways that we found unimaginable just a few years ago. Here we are again, grieving, and for more than one reason. You look beyond our nation to the world, it doesn't get any better. In all of that chaos, in all of that change, in all of that unpredictability and uncertainty, your Heavenly Father is the same. His love is steadfast. His plans are not only unchanging, they're also undefeatable. So whatever season you've come in, whether you've come to say thanks from a heart that's bursting with gratitude, or you've come hoping to find some measure of comfort and grace to face another day, I want you to tell you this whole Bible and this whole message you're about to hear as we listen to Moses pray, even the hard parts of it, it's all good news. It all shows the goodness of God displayed in his strength on your behalf because he's just that loving. Let's pray together and pay attention to him. Jesus, thank you for the time we have together. Help us, Lord, listen to the prayer of a man you describe simply as a man of yours. Help us learn from him that we may know you, love you, and gain the wisdom which he offers us as he prays. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Do you remember getting a job that you really didn't feel qualified for? Has that ever happened to you? Or you kind of fooled them in the interview and there you are and now they're actually expecting you to live up to the resume or the promises you made in the interview? It happened to me and it happened to me right here at this church. Right after I graduated from Bible college, my pastor Bruce Melton put me on staff full time and I was scared to death. They gave me a box where they could put mail for me. Imagine They gave me keys that actually opened some of the doors. Not all of them. I wasn't allowed everywhere, but I had keys that opened at least a few things. They even gave me a desk and a used chair that they found somewhere that used to belong to somebody else so that I could sit down while I did the work they expected me to do. And I was just happier than I ever thought I could be and also scared out of my wits because I felt like an imposter. I thought, they're going to find out that I really don't know what I'm doing and they're going to show me the door in Christian love, of course. (laughs) So I tried to make myself useful and the first thing I found to do to make myself useful is, it it was well known to my pastor and it's known to you that I come from a missionary family. My family, my mom and dad are still missionaries to this day 
And I offered myself as part of as many job opportunities and responsibilities as they dared to let me try to be the go-between between this church and all of our missionaries. Then I found out that down in San Diego, they were having a mission conference where guys like myself were welcome to come and be taught and be preached to and to pray together to learn how to better serve the church through missions. So I asked without a great deal of confidence that the request would be approved, could I please go down to San Diego and spend the day down there at this conference? And they said yes. Not knowing any better, they allowed me to represent the church down in San Diego. And there I met a missionary statesman. He was 89 years old when I met him, and he was the keynote speaker. His name was Sanders, Dr. Sanders. I had read his book when I was in Bible college, and he was one of those larger-than-life people whose book you read so long ago, you actually can't believe he's still alive and right in front of you. And he preached the way I hoped someday that I would know how to preach. And then they led us into what they call a concert of prayer, which is a lot of prayer in a lot of different ways with a lot of different people and formats to keep people's mind engaged. And at the crucial moment, they said, now we're going to pair up and pray in groups of two. And Dr. Sanders walked off the platform behind his pulpit, put his 89-year-old hand on my young shoulder and said, young man, let's pray. Oh, my goodness. And this is a little bit embarrassing to admit, but I'm just being honest with where I was at that moment. I was so in awe of the man I was praying with that I was barely paying attention to what I said as I addressed the God of the universe. You ever prayed to impress the people around you rather than being impressed and moved by the fact that you're talking to the God above you who made everything? That was me, scared witless by the absolute legacy, the life-changing Mount Rushmore kind of guy that I was praying with. So I staggered through my prayer. I have no idea what I said. I'm sure it was favorable toward the missionaries. I think I was generally in favor of missions in my prayer. I honestly don't remember because I was so overawed by the man next to me. And then Dr. Sanders began to pray. And it happened once or twice before, but that will be a memory that all these years later all these years later still kind of knocks me back because as soon as he started to pray, the atmosphere changed altogether. It became very obvious to me that I was listening to a man pour his heart out to God who he knew very, very well. It was obvious not only in the things he said, but the way he said them, that he was speaking to a God that Sanders knew far better than I knew the same God. He had invested life and attention and passion and dedication and sacrifice and obedience in a way that I had not even begun to imagine. I explained to a friend later, I know this is bad theology, but it's as if heaven stopped and God Almighty said, wait a second, Sanders wants to say something to me. It was so memorable that later I followed him out into the parking lot. I became that annoying conference attendee that follows the keynote around and I said, Dr. Sanders, thank you for praying with me. It's a lesson I'll never forget. Sir, you've lived an extraordinary life that has taught generations. He died a few months after we had this conversation. I said, sir, what's the secret? You're finishing well, and you're just so 
obviously close to the Lord. How did you do it? What would you tell me so that I can finish well? And he said something like, well, Bruce, I always tried to minister to other out of the overflow of my own relationship with God because if I didn't stay close to God myself, I found out that no matter how deeply I dug, I just came up dry and dusty and had nothing to give anybody else. A lesson I'll never forget. Now, why am I telling you that? Because I'm going to invite you now to open your Bibles in Psalm 90. And here, you're not going to hear just a Christian pray. You're going to listen to Moses pray. You're going to hear a man who knew God and experienced God in a way that no one in this room ever has. Moses, in his time, knew God even better than Dr. Sanders did. The title of the book of the psalm itself tells you that you're on very special ground in the Scriptures. Psalm 90 is titled, A Prayer of Moses, and then it says, The Man of God. What a title. Pastors are sometimes referred to as men of God, but that's just a commonplace, that's a cliche, that's often a joke. Scripture says that what it records here is a prayer of Moses who was definitively the man of God. Why does the Bible call him that? Well, Moses, you may remember, was that prince of Egypt who was providentially placed in Pharaoh's own household to grow under the care of a king that would oppress his own people. Using all of that intelligence, all that power, all of that knowledge, Moses became a murderer. He made an out-of-control attempt to make things right between an Egyptian slaveholder and one of his oppressed Israelite brothers, and Moses had to run for his life. From that desert experience, Moses, without seeking God for himself, met God in Exodus chapter 3 in one of the mountaintops of Scripture. Moses meets God and experiences his presence as a holy place in a burning bush that is not consumed. God speaks to Moses in that desert place and explains to him simply that his name is I Am. Tell them that I Am sent you. Moses, in spite of all of his objections, all of his fears, and all of his complaints, actually goes on to liberate Israel. He very famously sends the ten plagues. God sends the plagues, but he does so as using Moses as his man. Each one of the plagues, none of them coincidental. They seem coincidental because we are not familiar with the pantheon of gods of Egypt, but every single one of them is designed to expose and defeat a false god in the Egyptian buffet of gods. The last home touched is the home of Pharaoh himself when his firstborn son famously dies. After that, Moses throws Israel out of his land, but famously changes his mind and sends his world-famous murderous army after them. Moses, at God's command, opens the Red Sea. An entire group of people, perhaps a million people, pass through the Red Sea as walking, as it were, on a highway on dry land, and as soon as they are safe, God closes the Red Sea on top of the Egyptian army, and they're all destroyed in a moment in Moses' eyesight. 
then God continues to manifest his presence. He mediates and gives his word through Moses. He leads Israel first as a cloud during the day and a pillar of fire by night. And very famously in Exodus chapter 20, God gives Moses his commandments. His law, his character, his will, his purpose for Israel is all given down, is all given to Israel through Moses. And the book of Numbers makes this astonishing description that Moses was a man who spoke, as it were, face to face with God as a man speaks with his friend. Absolutely, Moses deserves the title that he is the man of God. And in Psalm 90, you hear him pray. And the lessons, the painful history that you can read in your biblical book of Numbers are reflected in this prayer because after all that, Moses led the people of Israel to the very edge of the promised land. They sent spies across to look at the land and almost all of them came back with a fearful, God-denying report. They said, those men are like giants. We're like grasshoppers. We can't do this. And God says, because of your lack of faith, you're all going to die in the desert. And Moses has the sad, sad, heartbroken leadership of leading his people back out into the wilderness there to wander for 40 years where he watches that faithless generation die right in front of him. Moses, as close as he was to God, doesn't end his own life entirely well. Perhaps because of all this pain, because of all this trauma, because of all this disappointment, before entering the promised land, Moses himself disrespects God and is punished by dying on the wrong side of the river, only looking with his eyes, but never setting foot on himself, the land that God had promised him and the people of Israel so long ago. So you need to know this is the man that prayed Psalm 90. He knows God and knows more of life and knows more about the reality of humanity and its frailty and its sinfulness and the holiness and the justice and also the steadfast love of God than we have dared imagine is true. Let's learn together. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Well, that's a wonderful thought. Lord, you personally have been our dwelling place. You have been where we lived. Another manuscript translates, Lord, you have been our refuge. But what's on the page of your Bible, I believe, is the best way to understand what Moses actually prayed. He's not only a blessing and a protection, God himself is the place where his people live. He chose them, he blessed them, he saved them, he's carrying them along. Verse 2, before the mountains were brought forth... Or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, what's it say? You are God. There's the echoes of what God heard from Moses all those years earlier. God just is. He's there. He's eternal. He's uncreated. And people who deny God and think the world somehow sprang into existence think that's absurd. But let me just remind you. We all agree that we're living in reality, that there is matter and life all around us, that we are living being ourselves. If you deny that there is an eternal God, you have to believe that there was an eternal something somewhere that started all this. Years ago, the University of California in Berkeley published a very important study saying that they had dialed back 
to the very moment of existence. And what they had found when the world, when all of the universe began, were particles. In the beginning, Berkeley says, there were particles. And the obvious question is, where did the particles come from? You see, everyone who deals with the reality that we live in a world with life has to have faith of a sort. If you deny that there is a God, you just believe that there is an eternal something. The claim of the Bible takes far less faith, in my opinion. It claims that in the beginning there was someone before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And then the psalm begins to take a dark turn. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. Now Moses is hearkening back to the first book in the Bible, a book he also wrote in Genesis chapter 3, where sin appears in the world and God pronounces over sinful Adam, you are dust and to dust you will return. Notice here the difference that Moses is beginning to sketch between God and ourselves. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years and your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch, in other words, a few hours in the night. You sweep them away with a... As with a flood, they are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, in the evening it fades and withers. And at this point you're thinking, boy, sure, I'm glad I came to church. This is so encouraging. What is, God, what is Moses telling you here in his prayer? He's telling you from his deep knowledge of God and his lifetime of experiencing witnessing death in the desert what we are so good at denying, that life is very brief. That life looked at from the point of view of eternity and the reality of an eternal God, a thousand years become like the day of yesterday, like a few hours in the night. People under God's eyes are like a dream that is quickly gone. We're like grass that flourishes in the morning but burns up and dies and fades and withers, it says in verse 6. Now, why is that? Verse 7 says, For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70. Or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? I told you in the beginning that there's some hard verses in Psalm 90. They're not unfounded. They're actually absolutely true. They're built on reality. They reflect and announce with every kind of poetic image imaginable to convey the accuracy of what Moses is praying, something that we've gotten really, really good at ignoring, and that is the fact that life is brief. We think it will go on forever. But Moses, after watching an entire generation die in front of him, 
has been reminded that the most vigorous people he knows are like a passing dream. They're like grass growing in the field that flourishes in the morning with the dew, but then the sun comes up and the dew that once nourished it is actually now used by the sun to burn it and it withers and dies by the late afternoon. We're not good at thinking about this. And there's something much more troubling in here. You might have looked at it twice. You might have wished it wasn't in the Bible passage that I was reading. You've read there about God's anger and God's wrath. And nothing in our current cultural conditioning, nothing in 2022 in America has made it easy for any American to think of God showing anger. I don't want to think about that with you just for a moment because it's a really curious thing. Has it occurred to you that God is the only person in America who is not allowed to be angry? Have you noticed our culture? Everyone's angry. About what? Well, it depends. This morning, as is my custom, I got up super early, read my passage a few times, thought through the sermon, and then walked in the neighborhood for just about 10 minutes, praying about the passage, praying for myself, praying for you, praying that this moment that we're in right now, you could see the truth of life that is so obvious, but we've gone so good at denying. And as I walked just a few blocks in my own neighborhood, I noticed that my neighbors were posting creeds against each other. Have you seen this? It's yard signs and bumper stickers. They had started to put their creeds, their values, their beliefs in their yard, and it was pretty easy to see that the neighbors across the street in one part of the neighborhood had actually posted warring, feuding signs at each other. One guy in particular had posted his entire worldview in about 12 bumper stickers I counted on the back of a Prius. Everything this person believes and holds of great value, it's all on the back of his car. And underneath all that, the reason people are buying bumper stickers and making jokes and posting yard signs against one another's values is that everybody's angry. We have good reason to be angry in the United States. It's been a brutal week. And it's a week that has reminded us of many other weeks like it in the United States. And the American conception of God is that we all have a right a right to be angry, we have a right to be heard in our anger, but God alone, God himself alone has no right to be angry. Here's the truth. Psalm 90 verse 8, this is the reason God's anger is aroused. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Think about that for a moment. We've had a terrible week. With all the news that you've had, all the wickedness, all the cowardice, all the cruelty, all the death, and that's just in the United States without looking across the world, for the kind of carnage that we've again endured is commonplace in at least a few countries in the world. Did you shut the news off at any point? Did you say, okay, I've heard enough, I got the headlines, I don't want to hear anymore? Consider the fact that God cannot and does not do that. Every wicked thing that every human being does is always and ever before Him. When we say that God is omniscient, to use a fancy Bible term, 
theology term, that God knows all things. It means that He sees and knows all of life, all of its joys, all of its glories, all of its praiseworthy things, everything good, but also every wicked, evil, rotten, appalling thing, the things that you can choose choose to shut off, the things that emotionally and mentally exhaust you where you can't think anymore and you might even find yourself numbed or even joking to cope about the reality of the world, Moses says all of that is before you. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. That's why, verse 9, all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to end like a sigh. Here's some hard-earned reality for you. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength. In other words, the strongest among us, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone. And then what's it say? We fly away. Moses is saying that the reality is that God is holy and eternal and He sees all of life, including all of its sin, and for that reason we are frail and our days are actually very short. We've gotten really good at denying that life is short. I'll never forget it. It's been a lot of years now, but I'll never forget it. Years ago, I sat in the back of the auditorium almost touching the sound booth, I sat with a lady who was in her mid-90s. And she was brokenhearted because her best friend, who was 101 years old, if memory serves, the 90-something-year-old told me that the 101-year-old would soon die, and she was brokenhearted about it. And I tried to tell her the good news of the gospel and where she and her friend could find hope. And she heard all that and actually trusted Christ. But in the middle of all of that, she said something that I found kind of striking. She said regarding her friend's death, I just don't know why these things have to happen. (laughs) Now that's curious. The 9 a.m. service was packed and they laughed. This room's pretty full and you laughed. Why'd you laugh? I'm talking about a sweet little old lady dying, and you laughed. Why'd you laugh? Because you know it's absurd for someone who is approaching 100 years of age to be surprised by death. It just tells you how good we are at denying that it will come for us, too. The reason it will come for every one of us is because God made us from dust and because of sin to dust will return. All of these days are lived under His holy gaze. The strongest among us, Moses says, from watching a whole generation die, the strongest among us made it to 80, but their last few years were brutal. We don't like to live in reality. And Dallas Willard, who was once the chair of The philosophy department at the University of Southern California said this, mistakes about reality lead to brutal encounters with it. You need to deal with reality as it actually is, not as you hope it will be or imagine it to be. Moses here is telling you the truth. We've gotten really good at denying these realities. I've just crossed over into my 50s and people say regarding people my age that I'm middle-aged. I don't think so. Middle means in the middle. I don't think I'm making it to 104. I think it's much more likely that I'm in the third quarter and the clock keeps running and I can't call a timeout. That's reality. 
And whether you laugh or whether you mourn over it, Moses wants you to come to grips with this reality. Our days are like grass in the field, like a passing dream, like a few hours flying by in the night. Verse 11, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? In other words, God, who deals with you as you actually are? Who thinks about the reality of their sin? Who thinks about all that you see and know about them? So what does he do? If you've noticed, these first 11 verses, Moses is just talking to God about who God is and how frail mortal people under his care and under his hand experience him. In verse 12, for the first time, he makes a request. And the request, what Moses asked God to do, that's what makes all the difference. Moses said, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. In other words, Moses, teach us to do, and I would say what we Americans are so bad at doing, make us count our days. Don't just give us the foolishness of living them, imagining that they will never come to an end. No, teach us to number our days because if we count how little time we may have left, Moses says we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord. How long have pity on your servants? Return, O Lord, doesn't sound like much of a phrase, but the good news of Jesus is bound up in it. That's entirely good news. That phrase alone tells you that salvation comes from God and God alone. What Moses is saying is, God, there's no doubt we've walked away from you. Would you please come after us? Since we have turned away from you, will God you please return to us? How long? Have pity on your servants. In other words, we don't deserve this. We need your mercy. We need, we who have walked away from you, need you to return to us. And then, like a ray of light at dawn after a dark, brutal night, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. That phrase, steadfast love, is one of the most important phrases in all of the Old Testament. In all of the Hebrew Bible, the steadfast love of God is one of the most important things you can learn about. Someone who knew Hebrew explained it to me like this, because he knew he had to put it in simple terms. He said, Bruce, just imagine that it's like bulldog love. It is love that will not let go. It seems like a strong, violent word to apply to love, but God's love, Moses would explain to us, is tenacious. It is unrelenting, it is loyal, it is indefatigable, it does not wear out, he does not grow tired because God is love. The New Testament tells us God can satisfy the people he saves with his steadfast love and the result, Moses says, is we will rejoice and be glad in all of our days. In other words, as short as our days are, with the time that we have left, we can be glad in it. Verse 15, make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. That's a practical request right out of Israel's painful experience. In other words, Moses is saying, God, would you please even it out? 
We've had some brutal years. Would you come back to us? Since we have ignored you, would you turn to us and give us as many good years as we've had bad ones? And as you keep reading from left to right in this book, you understand that Moses asked God for a good and wise thing, but the goodness of God because of his steadfast love is better even than anything Moses dared to ask him. A few centuries later, David would write Psalm 23 and express the confidence that because the Lord was his shepherd, he would live in the house of the Lord for how long? Do you remember? Forever. Not just a few good years before dying, but life everlasting because God himself, verse 1, is our dwelling place in all generations. Then he says in verse 16, God, with the time we have left, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Moses remembers things that only God can do, things that astonished Israel and astonished the nations around them. God, do them again. Let us see them again. Let us, our children see them. And then in verse 17, let the favor of the Lord God be upon us. A request. Establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. End of prayer. At the very end, Moses with his heartfelt, heartbroken, humble prayer says, God, our days are fleeting, but we're not done yet. I remember that in spite of all the people who have died Because of their sin, I remember your steadfast love, and I ask you again to show up big and strong on our behalf and bless the work that our hands will do with the little time that we have left. What is Moses teaching us? Here, very simply this, Christian, only counting your days on earth will make your days count in eternity. You've been raised in a culture of endless entertainment and a numbing to emotions and ideas that will steal your life and make you spend it on frivolity if you're not careful. How much time do you have left? Well, that's the humbling thing. Nobody knows. You may be in your 20s and have less time than the rest of us. You may be in your 80s or 90s and still have many more years than you think, with which to ask a good, steadfast, loving, holy God who knows all things to show His work to you, do His work on your behalf and through you, and to establish the work of your hands. Can I just ask you in closing, Christian, are you living and pouring your life into anything that will outlive you? Or are all your goals earthly? It won't be enough to merely bless your children with the wealth that you're accumulating for them. That will be a good thing. That's a biblical thing. That is a blessing to them from you. But their life, like your own, will be brief. Are you living yourself and are you teaching them to live and invest and do the work with the time and the resources, the money, the talent? the intelligence, the skill, and the opportunities that God gave you? Are you yourself and are you teaching your children to live for things and give yourself to things that will last not for a generation but forever, that show the work and the grace and the holiness and the steadfast love of God? That's the only life worth living for. That's why Moses taught us to pray 
to count our days so that we can make sure that our brief days will count. Let's pray together. I know on a holiday weekend, I may especially be talking to people who are already following Jesus. But Christian, you're as subject to the temptations and the shaping of this culture as any one of us, including me. Are you living for things to which you could say, God bless this work? Affirm the work that I'm doing? Will it outlive you? Will what you're doing right now count in a thousand years? That's the real test. Not whether the kids will have it better. That's easy. Anybody wants that. People who deny the very existence of God want their children to have it better than they do. That's normal. That's merely human. I'm talking about eternity. 10,000 years from now is the way you're spending your time using your money, using your talents, your training, your education. Is all that, any of it, going to count 10,000 years from now? If not, could I invite you to talk to your father about it? Acknowledge your sin. Tell God that you've discovered and you've been reminded by Moses that you don't have long, but you want your life to count. Whether it's decades and decades or not much longer from now, you want it all to count, that God would bless it. Count your days so that your days will count. And listen, friend, are you sure you know Jesus? Would you bet your your everlasting soul, that part of you that will not die? Are you willing to stake your soul on the fact that you know you'll live forever in God's presence? Are you sure, entirely sure, that God has given you his steadfast love, cleansed all your sin, that God won't just judge you as someone who has sinned against him, but welcome his, welcome you as his own son and daughter. If you don't know that, could I invite you just to turn away from your sin and ask Jesus to save you? He absolutely and certainly will. Jesus said in the Gospel of John, if anyone comes to me, I will by no means cast him out. The trouble is never in Jesus' willingness and ability to save. It's only in people's willingness to turn to him. You have a whole feast of a life in front of you in Christ. God will be your dwelling place. You not only be blessed by God, you'll be in Christ. You'll be in God. If only you'll come to Him. Father, I pray for Christians that are asking you to make their life count. Lord, may each of our lives count for eternity. Help us to have holier and better ambitions than making a mark in our brief lifetime. Bless, affirm, strengthen the work of our hands so that it'll last forever. And Lord, if there's a single person here who doesn't know you, I pray that right now, while I'm quiet, they would turn to you and ask you for your salvation. And I thank you, Jesus, for as many as you may call and save. Give them the sure confidence that you are their dwelling place and refuge. We love you. We thank you. In Christ's name I pray, and Cross Point says, Amen. Amen. Folks, 
Love you very much. It's a pleasure to open the Bible with you. If you're here for the first time, we'd love for you to turn those, that card in at the hello table or give it to an usher if you don't want to stop there. Those cards are in the bulletin every week. They're not used as often as we would like. If you have a prayer request or a need, please let us know. And remember, there's people waiting to pray for you right over here to my right. God bless you. Bye-bye.